So if you would please find your seat. I have to share something real, real quickly with you. Uh, the closing song is one of the praise team's favorite songs, Grace Like Rain. And I've just been encouraged by one of the praise team members, He Shall Remain uh, un- Anonymous, <laughs> who said... <laughs> who said, (laughs) who just said, let's get on with this so we can get to grace like rain. (laughs) He's a good man. He's a good man. (laughs) So, all right. Well, we got a few more things to do before grace like rain. (laughs) Uh, We're going to study the word of God. Uh, we may get into Acts chapter 2 this morning. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, we have a shortened time in the Word of God because of the Lord's Supper, so we have a little less time to uh, teach this morning. So if you'd open to Acts chapter 1, the closing verses of chapter 1, and the beginning of chapter 2, hopefully we will get into chapter 2 and the birth of the church. It's an exciting portion of Scripture, as you well know. And... Uh, about the last 20 minutes of the service, I'll be turning it over to Scott Foshi, uh, and he will be leading us in the Lord's Supper, and uh, he always does, has something really exciting to share with us. So, Scott, we're looking forward to it. No pressure at all. Yeah. No, no pressure. <laughs> all right. Acts chapter 1, the closing verses in chapter 2. Uh, we have something to do first, though. After we pray, would you bow your head with me? Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, the privilege that you give us of gathering together and uh, of worshiping you, of singing songs of praise, of raising our thoughts to you, of turning our thoughts from the activities of last week or the responsibilities coming up next week. Help us to lay those aside so that we can concentrate on you, to think about you, to think about your glory, to think about your grace, to think about your mercy, your forgiveness, your justice, to think about how you direct us, Lord, to accomplish your will. Thank you for this time together. Thank you, as always, for the salvation that you have provided freely through your Son, Jesus Christ, and His finished work on Calvary, asking only that we put our faith in Him, not ourselves, not good works, not religion, but in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Guide our study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have been studying the uh, early uh, disciples and how they made the selection of a member to replace Judas, we have been talking about the will of God, how they determined the will of God, what were the elements that were involved in them uh, determining the will of God in choosing uh, Matthias over Joseph. And we've been looking at that and studying that over the last two weeks. And we've been talking about, well, how is it that you and I determine the will of God? How can we determine uh, uh, between two choices? What are the steps that we might take? So I wanted to continue that discussion. That's where I want to start this morning is talk about 
uh, the will of God, how might we know the will of God? How might we seek out the will of God? Remember, there were several things that the early church did in Acts chapter 1. They consulted Scripture. And that's always an important step to take, and we'll be talking more about that as we continue this morning with talking about how to know the will of God. They consulted Scripture. They spent time in the study of the Word of God. They spent time in uh, reading the Word of God. They spent time in studying it and reading it together. The second thing that we've seen as we've gone through here is they submitted themselves to God in prayer. Excuse me. They submitted themselves to God in prayer. They submitted their wills to God in prayer. And the third thing we've seen here is that they exercised their reason in light of the circumstances. They exercised their reason in light of their circumstances. Now, last week we looked at at six principles of the will of God uh, from the Scripture. I want to start this morning with three decision-making principles that you and I should follow. And they're principles by Patrick Morley from the book Man in the Mirror. He tells us there are three things that we should consider when we consider the will of God in our lives. And I think they're important enough for us to share. The first is this. We need to make decisions according to the Word of God. We just said that. We just talked about the early church and how they consulted the Word of God. They went to the Word of God before they made their decision. Well, you and I need to make our decisions according to the Word of God. If our decision, and this this is a no-brainer, but let me say it anyhow, if our decision contradicts Scripture, it's a bad decision. Simple, right? (laughs) If a decision that we are making about the will of God contradicts the Word of God, then it's a bad decision. So that's the first of Morley's principles. The second is this. Avoid foolish decisions that test God. Avoid foolish decisions that test God. In other words, don't put yourself in a position which requires a miracle to bail you out. Don't make a decision that tests God and requires a miracle to bail you out. The third principle that Morley shares is this. Avoid decisions that reduce your worship and service to God. Avoid, rather, decisions that reduce your worship and service to God. In other words, you have an opportunity to take another position. You have an opportunity to go to another city. You have some kind of opportunity that comes up in your life. Don't make a decision just based upon income. Don't make a decision just based upon status. Don't make a decision just based upon moving up the ladder. Those are okay things to consider, but the more important things to consider are worship and service to God. You may be sacrificing worship to God. You may be sacrificing service to God by accepting that kind of a position. 
So be careful about that. Avoid decisions that reduce your worship and service to God. Don't get caught up, Morley says. Don't get caught up in the rat race. Don't get caught up in chasing phony gods. One of the most important things you consider and you can consider in making a decision about the will of God is the opportunity to worship God, the opportunity to serve God. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, I can find that anywhere I go. I don't believe that. After 40 years in ministry, I don't believe that. I don't believe it doesn't matter to God. I don't believe that you can go anywhere you want to. Now, of course you can find worship. There are churches everywhere. That's good. That's good. Of course you can find worship. Of course you can find a place to serve. The question is, is it the place that fits you so well that God has designed you for? I don't think it's like, well, you can just pick up and, and I can go anywhere. I think that there may be times God says, don't go. Don't make that choice. Don't take that promotion. The opportunity to worship and serve God and to be in a place that your, your family is content to be in a place where you sense <clears throat> that you belong, those are all important. Those are all important. So I'm not saying don't ever take a promotion. That would be ridiculous. Don't ever choose not to go to another city. That would be ridiculous. I'm just saying that sometimes we put the wrong priorities on how we make decisions or why we make them. And that's what Morley, I think, is trying to say. Avoid decisions that reduce your worship and service to God. Well, I wanted to share with you some principles that John MacArthur developed for knowing the will of God. I think this may be the best thing I've ever read about the will of God. Or the best thing I've ever studied about the will of God is what MacArthur suggests. And so let me share with you what he suggests about how you and I can determine what the will of God is for us. There are three things. The first is this. MacArthur says we should follow God's moral principles as spelled out in His Word. What does he mean by that? What he means by that is in at least five cases, the Scripture in the New Testament clearly spells out this is God's will. You know, it really interests me when people say, well, how can we know God's will? And I think to myself, did you not read the New Testament yet? Have you not read the New Testament? Because there are at least five places where it says this is the will of God or lays out that what God's will is. And so what MacArthur says, his first principle for knowing the will of God is this, follow God's moral principles as they are spelled out in the Word. The first of these principles spelled out in the Word, is this. It's God's will that we be saved. Duh, <laughs> right? That's where it begins. It is God's will that we be saved. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, God doesn't want anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. God's desire is that everyone might understand who Jesus Christ is, that He is God incarnate, God in the flesh, God who went to Calvary's cross to take your place and my place, to bear your sin and my sin in His innocent body. God desires we all change our minds. You know, at one time, Jesus 
may have been nothing but a curse word to some people. Or at one time, God may be just somebody that, or Jesus may have been just somebody that they gave lip service to. I don't know about you, I, I came to Christ as an adult. I went to church. Now, I wasn't a great churchgoer, but I went to church and thought I was worshiping God. I knew the name of Jesus Christ, but I didn't know really who He was. I didn't have a personal relationship with Him. It really didn't matter to me how I lived or whether it pleased Him or not. That's all that it means when it talks about repentance. It means to turn around, to change your mind, to change your mind about who Jesus Christ is, to change your mind about what he did. That's what repentance is. It's God's will that we be saved. 2 Peter 3, 9. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You don't have to be confused about God's will, whether He wants people to be saved or not. He does. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, He wants you to be saved. He wants you to be saved. If you've never had a time in your life when you have put your trust in Him, not live service, but put your trust in Him. The second of God's moral principles that MacArthur mentions is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. It's God's will that we be spirit-controlled. It's God's will that we be spirit-controlled. It's spelled out there in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. That is that we yield every decision to the control of the Spirit of God. We yield every decision to the control of the Spirit of God. Colossians 3.16 says we should be saturated with the things of Christ. We should be saturated with the things of Christ. So it's God's will that we be Spirit-controlled. It's God's will that we yield control, that we're saturated with the things of Christ, that we yield control to the Spirit of God. We don't have to wonder about that. We don't have to guess what is God's will. It's laid out clearly. It's God's will that we be Spirit-controlled. It's God's will that we be saved. It's God's will, the New Testament tells us, that we be spirit-controlled. Thirdly, it's God's will that we be sanctified. It's God's will that we be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-7. to Paul is teaching us there that it's God's will that we live a pure lifestyle. It's God's will that we live a pure lifestyle. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be set apart to God, to set ourselves apart from the world, from sin, from self, and to set our part, ourselves apart to God, to holiness, to a holy lifestyle. That's God's will. How many believers choose sin in their lives now, by the way, I'm not saying that believers can ever get to the point where they're sinless. That never happens. You and I will never be sinless. 
We'll never be without sin before we get to glory. We'll never be without sin. It doesn't mean we won't sin, but it means that there is a desire on our part not to sin. We don't embrace sin. We don't excuse sin. There's a desire on our part to not sin. That's what we're talking about in being sanctified and being holy. It's God's will. It's clearly spelled out in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-7. to You can write that down. I'm going to just turn to that passage real quick. Quickly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 7. Paul wrote, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. It's God's will that we be sanctified. You and I should have a desire in our lives <clears throat> from the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ to be set apart to God, to be holy, to live a holy lifestyle. Not a perfect life, not a sinless life, but a holy life. I, I like, uh, Jerry Bridges has written a lot about this. You all know who Jerry Bridges is? Uh, he's written a lot about holiness. And uh, there's a little devotional book that I've been enjoying this year by Jerry Bridges. Bridges. Uh, it is uh, excerpts taken from his books, and it's called Holiness Day by Day. And he talks about this desire for holiness in one of his uh, daily devotionals. He says this, in Hebrews 2.14, we're told to take seriously the necessity of personal practical holiness. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives at our salvation, He comes in to make us holy in practice. If there is not then, and, and listen to this because I think this is so good and I think a lot of Christians are confused about this. If there is not then at least a yearning in our hearts to live a holy life pleasing to God, we need to seriously question whether our faith in Christ is genuine. That's what the Word of God says. If there is absolutely no desire in our heart for holiness, no desire in our heart to be set apart to God, no desire in our heart to deal with sin in our lives, then we have the right to question ourselves. Now, my problem is that there are a lot of Christians who believe they're the Holy Spirit. And they go around saying, I don't think he's saved. I don't think she's saved. That's not your business. That's not your business. They stand or fall before God. God alone knows whether that person's saved or not. However, however, what you can do if you have opportunity and God opens that door and gives you opportunity is to say to that person, well, I accept that you say you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, but do you think you're living up to that commitment? Do you think your lifestyle reflects that you're living for Jesus Christ? I, I like what Bridges said. If there's not a desire for holiness, 
if there's not some kind of yearning in our hearts to live a holy life, a pleasing to God life, not a perfect life, not a sinless life, but a desire to live a life pleasing to God, we need to seriously consider whether our faith is genuine. No believer should make the choice to live perpetually in sin. Some would even question whether a believer could make that choice to live perpetually, perpetually in sin. Bridges also quotes Bishop Ryle. Bishop Ryle was a writer of a long time ago, a great, great student of the Word of God. And he said this, <clears throat> I doubt indeed whether we have any warrant for saying that a man can possibly be converted without being consecrated to God. That is, without being set apart to God, sanctified. More consecrated, he doubtless can be. In other words, not, not one of us is as consecrated, as sanctified as we would like. Not one of us is as holy as we would like to be. More consecrated, he doubtless can be and will be as his grace increases, but if he was not consecrated to God, set apart to God is all he's saying there, in the very day that he was converted and born again, I do not know what conversion means. He's saying that if we are believers in Jesus Christ, there has to be some spark in us that desires holiness. That desires holiness, not sinlessness, not perfection, but that desires holiness. So, of the five moral principles that we should follow that are spelled out in the Word of God, we've looked at three of them. It's God's will that we be saved. It's God's will that we be spirit-controlled. It's God's will that we be sanctified. The fourth moral principle of the New Testament is this. It's God's will that we be submissive to authority. It's God's will that we be submissive to authority. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will. There it is. We don't have to run around saying, I don't know what God's will is. I don't know what God's will is. God's will is spelled out. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the King. Clearly it's spelled out. It's God's will that we be submissive to authority that we be submissive to authority. Fifth, the fifth moral principle that Mark MacArthur points out, it's God's will that we submit to suffering for the sake of the gospel. It's God's will that we submit to suffering for the sake of the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19. 
So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. It's God's will that we submit to suffering for the sake of the gospel. You can also write down and look up on your own 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. MacArthur says the first thing, if we want to know the will of God, if we want to do the will of God, if we want to follow the will of God, the first thing we have to do is follow God's moral principles. It's God's will that we be saved. It's God's will that we be under the control of His Spirit. It's God's will that we be sanctified. It's God's will that we be submissive to authority. It's God's will that we submit to suffering for the gospel's sake. The second step that MacArthur mentions is this. The first is we follow God's moral principles. The second step is this. If the preceding five principles, the five things we've just talked about, if the preceding five principles are operating in your life, then you can confident, <coughs> excuse me, confidently make decisions because God is running your life. In other words, if those five principles we just talked about are operating in your life, <clears throat> then you can confidently make decisions because God is running your life. See, that, that takes all the mystery out of it. That takes all the, the, the tension out of it, I believe. If we are living according to the principles of God's Word, where the will of God is spelled out, if we are living according to those, then we, God is running our lives. God is leading our lives. And so we can make decisions confidently and go forward. We don't have to strain and struggle and say, I would love to know what God's will is. God, please tell me what your will is. If we are living according to these five moral principles, we can then God's, we can confidently make decisions in our lives because God is running our lives. The third step that MacArthur talks about is this. God likes to use people who are already moving. Don't sit around waiting for God to magically move us. In other words, start in a direction. You, you see it in Paul's life as he sought to determine the will of God. If he tried to go right and he reached a barrier, he assumed that God was directing him another way, turned around and went the other way. He didn't sit there and say, I guess I'll just twiddle my thumbs till God makes His will clear to me. By the way, I was sitting in a doctor's office or somewhere one day, and I happened to be doing that. And somebody said to me, oh, so I guess that's what twiddling your thumbs is. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I'm quite good at it. Uh, at any rate. Um, <laughs> but hopefully not in violation of this principle of MacArthur. God likes to use people who are already moving. Somebody, I think it's Navigators, has, has come up with the principle that it's difficult to steer a parked car. 
it's difficult to steer a parked car. So the third principle of MacArthur is God likes to use people who are already moving. Now, God has given us guidance for decision making. Let me quickly just give you a, a real quick list. He's given us, and we've talked about this many times already, given us the Bible, our personal desires as long as they're in line with the Word of God. He uses circumstances. He uses mature counsel. He uses common sense. He uses experience. And he uses inner impressions, except there's a caution about inner impressions. They can be affected by other factors such as immaturity or stress or lack of sleep. They can be affected by the flesh, that is the sinful nature. They can be affected by Satan. Sometimes they're affected by the pizza you ate before you went to bed. So be careful about inner impressions. Ask some questions if you're trying to make a decision about the will of God. Is this decision in accord with the Word? Is every part of this decision consistent with God's character? Is this decision wise? Is all that this decision involves from the Lord, is this decision confirmed by others in the body of Christ who are mature and respected Christians and know me well? Is the word from God that led us to this decision persistent? It won't let us go. Is the guidance for this decision consistent with God's previous guidance to us? Well, that's a discussion about the will of God. Let me just introduce one thing about chapter 2, and then I'll turn it over to Scott for the Lord's Supper. Chapter 2, as you know, is the beginning of the church. The initiation of the church. The day the Holy Spirit came to indwell, to indwell all believers. And we'll talk a lot about that in the coming couple of weeks. But let me say this about the day of Pentecost. Let me say this about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Let me say this about the start of the church. We, we tend to focus on only one thing, and what's that? Tongues. We tend to focus on tongues. What is tongues? And, and uh, what isn't it? And is it still is it a gift given today? And we, we tend to focus on, as if nothing else happened on the day of Pentecost except people spoke in tongues. But let me tell you this. The day of Pentecost is the day everything changed. The day of Pentecost is the day that everything changed. What do I mean by that? God's people from that day on would no longer have a national identity. God's people from that day on would no longer have a national identity. God's people would not be united by blood but, or by national identity, but they'd be united by faith in the indwelling spirit. Up to the day of Pentecost, you had the identity of the, of the Jews, of a national people, but the church isn't just made up of one 
nation, nation of people. It's made up of people from every nation, Jew and Gentile together. That changed on the day of Pentecost. God's people would no longer have a national identity. Number two, no longer would the priesthood be limited to one group of one tribe. From the day of Pentecost on, every believer would be a priest. Every believer would represent God to people and people to God. You are, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior this, this morning, you are a priest. You're a priest. You're one God is using to reach out to the people around you, and he's using you to bring them to God. You're a priest. You see, everything changed on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost inaugurated the age of the Spirit. No longer would the Spirit indwell only individuals and only temporarily, but from the day of Pentecost on, every believer would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit permanently. From the day of Pentecost on, no longer would the focus be in one building as the dwelling place of God, the temple. From the day of Pentecost on, every believer is the temple of God. God indwells, lives in every believer, not just a physical temple. That changed on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, no longer, from that day on, no longer would the focus be earthly blessings and earthly treasures, but rather they'd be spiritual blessings, spiritual treasures, heavenly rewards. Everything changed on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the focus changed from the law to grace. The focus would no longer be the law, but rather it would be grace. I like what C.I. Schofield said, and I'll share this with you, and then I'll turn it over to Scott. The law everywhere mentioned in Scripture was given by Moses, and from Sinai to Calvary dominates, characterizes the time, just as grace dominates or gives us peculiar character to the dispensation which begins at Calvary, and has its predicted termination at the rapture of the church. The day of Pentecost, attention turned from the law to grace. Everything changed on the day of Pentecost. Starting next week, we'll look at those changes and how they came about. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for giving us direction in your word so that we can confidently make decisions about the future. Thank you for the day of Pentecost when everything changed. Lord, thank you for your son. We honor him. We pray in his name. Amen. Scott? Amen. Thank you, Joe. You bet. I got to be honest, I was a little nervous um, because Joe brought up a daily devotional uh, that I also am using this year and I am referencing this morning. And as he was going, I was like, oh no, what if he talks about the exact same page that I talk about? 
But thankfully, he did not. There's a lot in the book, so that's good. Um, well, I just want to say thank you again for the opportunity to, uh, to share a devotional. For those of you that don't know who I am, I'm one of your elders. I'm the guy that stands up here and cries during goes, going aways. Uh, I'm also the, the youth leader here. Um, anytime they give me the opportunity to share what God has laid on my heart, I, I jump at the opportunity. So uh, I'm, I'm glad to be up here. Uh, but what else about me is that I'm a pretty simple guy. Um, I, the, the Bible reveals itself to me just as it does to you. And um, I also, I, I think I'm a lot like you because I forget that um, my salvation isn't something that happened to me in the past. I mean, it did happen to me in the past, but what I forget is that it's happening to me right now. I forget all the time that I'm not a person that was forgiven for the things I did before I was eight, right? That's when I made my profession of faith. Like, I'm not just forgiven for those sins, but I'm forgiven for my now sins. I'm forgiven for everything, even my future sins. He's forgiven me of those. And I I forget sometimes, and I get focused on uh, my, my weaknesses and my shortcomings and my failures. And sometimes I'm like, man, why would God choose to use someone like me? I mean, maybe I am the only one that's up here that's like that, but I can't assume that, you know, some of you guys also struggle with that. And what I find, and this is from Jerry Bridges, Holiness um, Day by Day, uh, he brought to attention Paul's words in Galatians chapter 6. He said, May I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And my challenge to you guys is to remember that, that at the cross, every single one of your sins was forgiven. Every single shortcoming no longer matters because the world was crucified to you. The world is erased. You are a child of God. You are made perfect in His image. And if we can remember that, and we can step forward with that foot saying, yeah, I'm probably going to mess up again. But I'm perfect in Christ, and I'm going to do whatever Christ has for me to do. I'm going to live my life that way. This world is such a better place. Now, I'm going to butcher this name. I promise you I'm going to butcher this name. So in Jerry Bridges' uh, um, devotional, he references a guy whose name is Muta Mahaani, maybe. Uh, He's the leader of the Navigator's Ministry in Kenya. But this is what he has to say. Whenever we fail, and fail we will, the Spirit of God will work on us and bring us to the foot of the cross where Jesus carried our failures. That is potentially a glorious moment, for we could at that moment accept God's abundant mercy and grace and go forth with nothing to boast except Christ himself, or else we struggle with our shames, focusing on that as well as our track record. But this is the part that I want you guys to to hear. 
One who draws on God's mercy and grace is quick to repent, but slow to sin. Right? Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he says, continue to work on your salvation with fear and trembling. Also, every time I read Paul, I feel like I'm in a locker room before a football game. Like, I feel like he's like hyping me up to like go out and just be like a rock star for Christ. Like, we're going to go out there and man, I'm going to live my best life because Paul's like, ah, you know, it's like that. But anyway, sorry. So I'm going to try and not do that when I read it. But okay. So it says, uh, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to, to fill, fulfill his good purpose. It is God who is working in us to fulfill his good purpose. Do nothing without, or do everything, sorry, do everything without grumbling and arguing, and this is the hype part, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in this warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on that day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, but even if I am poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is saying that God is working out our salvation. It is he who is working in our lives. Solomon tell, tells us in Proverbs that we should trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not our own understanding. Our own understanding tells us that our sin is too great, that our circumstances are so overwhelming that God would never use a person like me. Does God even know what I've done? He does. He does know. Solomon continues, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. We need to remember the words of Paul and Solomon. Oh, and by the way, these are the words of God. That he is the one that's going to work it out. That we need to trust God from the bottom of our heart and lean on our own understanding. We need to do this and know that God is working out his good purpose in our lives. And then if we acknowledge that we all suck, Every single one of us suck. But God makes us perfect. Right? I suck on my own. But so do you. Don't worry, I tell the youth that all the time. It's nice, though. It's nice. But we do. We're not perfect. But in God we are. And then this morning, as we take these elements, let's remember that God is working out His good purpose in our lives. He is doing something in you for His good purpose. And your sin and your circumstances aren't too great for God. We need to remember the cross. And the words of Paul here in Galatians, he says, boast in the cross, meaning I have a purpose. It's God's good purpose. 
I am nothing without this forgiveness. Joe said in his sermon this morning that we are all priests. We were made priests on the day of Pentecost, that we are going to go out and be that example. Your sin is not too great to be an example. Your circumstances are not too great for God. We need to remember that He is the one that is going to keep our path straight. When I got stationed at Laughlin Air Force Base in the year 2000, I didn't want to be here either. But God had other plans. And my job wasn't to tell God what He was going to do with my life. As a matter of fact, every time that I try, my life gets really, really, really sucky. Because God has a plan for me. And let's say, Kathy, can I borrow your Bible? Sure. I didn't bring mine up here with me. Let's say that this is my planner. And I say that every day I'm going to read my Bible, and this is how I do it. This is backwards. Because every day, what I should do is I should take this Bible, and I should take my planner, and I should stick it in that way. This is how we're supposed to be living our life with God's purpose, focusing on what we're doing in our day. That is what we need to remember this morning, that God is working out our salvation this morning. As we take the cup and gracefully pull the little plastic liner off, let us not focus on our sin. Let's leave it at the feet of Jesus. If this morning you're focusing on your weakness or you're focusing on a circumstance or you're focusing on a relationship that isn't going the way that you want it to go or you're focusing on an assignment that you don't want to have or you're focusing on whatever it is that's going on, take it this morning and leave it at the feet of cross, at the feet of Christ at the cross. Because though we are weak, he is strong. Amen? So let me, uh, I should have pre-gamed this. I always forget to do that. Here we go. I think I got it. You know what, Steve? I can't wait until we're not doing this anymore. Okay. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul shares this. For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and after he peeled the plastic thing from the top, Okay, that's not, that's not in there. <clears throat> Sorry. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim together as we take the cup.
Del Rio Bible Church, I challenge you this morning as we go back out into Del Rio, back out to Laughlin, back out to Brackettville, wherever we're going, I challenge you to remember the cross. I challenge you to remember that your salvation is not a historical event, but it is something that is happening to you now. You are forgiven. You were forgiven then, you're forgiven now, and you're forgiven in the future, and we just need to act like it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today, and I thank you for this opportunity to share your word. I thank you for this church, and I thank you for their desire to be a Bible church, to live out your word in our daily lives. I ask you to forgive us. Forgive us where we have failed you and give us the courage to be that light, to be that priest for you in the world. In your precious and holy name I pray. Amen.